Let's press on with our study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we have come to chapter 17, and this is continuing a scene that has stretched since the beginning of chapter 15. At the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus is walking along. A bunch of people are uh, coming to hear him teach, and there's Pharisees there, there's disciples there, there's other people there, and um, and the Pharisees notice that sinners and tax collectors are following Jesus, and they don't like it. So it sparks this long run of teaching where Jesus first talks to the Pharisees, then he turns and talks to the disciples, then the Pharisees say something, and he turns back and talks to them, and then he turns back and talks to the disciples. And this is the last time that he turns back and talks to the disciples before we finally have a scene change. And in fact, we will read in this passage the scene change. You'll see it's kind of a, a new place. But the beginning is his last statement in this long conversation that is stretched from chapter 15, chapter 16, and into chapter 17. Here's what it says. Jesus said to his disciples, stumbling blocks are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and be thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. Watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Even if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times returns to you saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this black mulberry tree, be pulled out by the roots and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Would any one of you say to your slave who comes in from the field after plowing or shepherding sheep, come at once and sit down for a meal? Wouldn't the master instead say to him, get my dinner ready and make yourself ready to serve me while I eat and drink, then you may eat and drink. He won't thank the slave because he did what he was told, will he? So you too, when you have done everything you were commanded to do, should say, we are slaves undeserving of special praise. We have only done what was our duty. Now on the way to Jerusalem, scene change. Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he was entering a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance, raised their voices, and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said, Go and show yourselves to the priests. As they went along, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell with his face to the ground at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to turn back and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to the man, get up and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, we say, like the Apostle Peter, you have the words of life. Where else could we go? 
Lord, we want to stay at your feet and hear you teach. Make us like Mary, open to what you would say. Transform us, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, our section starts with Jesus talking about stumbling blocks, then he talks about sin, and then he talks about forgiveness, then he's talking of this kind of story that feels very un-Jesus-y about the servant who's undeserving of special praise and shouldn't expect any special treatment. And then it, of course, scene change into uh, the story of these 10 men with leprosy. And uh, most, most of the writing about this uh, chapter say, these are assorted sayings and scenes uh, from Jesus, assorted sayings and scenes. And I want to tell you that I disagree. Uh, I think that, uh, that most of this holds together pretty tightly uh, and that where Jesus starts in this passage is something that we need to pay really close attention to. I think this whole scene, maybe with the exception of the thing about the lepers, that, that story, we'll, we'll get to that, is about how to handle sin. It's a discussion of how to handle sin in relationships. The opening line is, stumbling blocks are sure to come. In fact, that's in the, in the original language, in the Greek, it, it's not stumbling blocks are sure to come, it's a double negative. It's impossible for stumbling blocks not to come. So he's really emphasizing it. That is how serious he is. He says, there will not be a day of your life where nothing risks tripping you up. But if you are the source of the tripping for one of the, these little ones, you are in for an awful penalty. It'd be better to be drowned in the sea than to face the consequences of tripping up a little one. So what are these stumbling blocks? What's Jesus talking about? The Greek word here is a, is a word that should sound familiar. It's skandala. It's the word from which we get scandal. In fact, it could, this passage could have used the word scandal for the whole thing. Scandals are occasions that lead to sin. And this whole thing, if we think about it through the terms of scandals, I think it'll start to make more sense. In fact, I'm going to break this up into three parts. Scandals, just talking about scandals, which is fun, right? I mean, that sells newspapers. Uh, scandals, the scandals themselves. Okay, first scandal. Second, scandalizing the scandals. And third, scandalizing the scandalized. And beware, by the end of this, you're going to start thinking the word scandal has lost all meaning because I've repeated it so many times. Um, but I promise it's a word. So what, how do we think of scandals? Uh, you know, popularly, we think of scandal as something that, well, uh, lands in the newspaper. Someone with influence or power or fame has done something that is salacious. You know, they, they've, they've misused their power, they've misused their fame, whatever, and so, boom, it's, it's news. It's a scandal. Uh, they've, they've abused their power for gain. Maybe that's because, you know, we can sense there's sort of ripple effects when that happens, when someone does that. But for most of us, a scandal is something distant. It's something that we read about. Uh, it's not part of common life. 
But that is not how Jesus is using it, of course. Here, a scandal is incredibly personal. It is an offense. It trips you up. It makes you fall. A scandal is an opportunity to sin. In a similar teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus uses this word scandal about your own body. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He's saying, if your eye scandalizes you, if your hand scandalizes you, you should get rid of it. That's talking about purity, your own body, your own urges, your appetites, your aches, your pains can all be a scandal. They can be something that you trip over. And Jesus is calling us to somehow subdue those things at all costs. Now in that teaching, the body part which brings the scandal is cut away so the person won't be thrown into hell. It's a scary teaching. We're not talking about that one necessarily today. In today's passage, the person who causes the scandal would fare better if they were thrown into the sea with a big, heavy stone tied to them. Whatever else scandals are, they are serious business, right? Right, Mike, yes, yes. So, okay, so what, what are they? Um, here's a hint. Jesus goes straight from this saying about scandals. Oh, by the way, I, um, uh, go to the next uh, uh, slide there. All, this is where all of these are the places where he uses the word scandal. Next slide. Um, there it is. Scandals are sure to come. Scandalize one of these little ones. For some reason, I wanted to show you that. So there it is. Jesus goes straight from this, talking about scandals, to talking about how to respond when your brother sins. Is he talking about the same thing? Well, uh, yes, of course he is. It's continuing the same teaching. You see, it turns out there are very few moments in which you are more likely to stumble than when someone around you sins. That's just the nature of the case. There, when your brother sins, it presents you with a veritable buffet of sin choices. It's wonderful. You have so many options. There's good old judgment and pride. You can, you know, have that pleasant reminder in his sin of how much better you are than he is. You know, there's, uh, of course, you know, the, the cover to join him in it. You know, well, hey, I, I, guess, we're, I guess we're joking in this way now. I, I guess we're drinking now. I guess we're doing, you know, whatever. You have cover to jump in. It's, it's Adam jumping in with eating the forbidden fruit. There's, there's, uh, cover to join in the sin and it still be kind of his fault. Maybe you can now give yourself permission for a lesser sin. Your brother, your brother did that. Like I'm only doing this. You know, we we give ourselves permission. Oh, there's there's the opportunity to gossip. You know, this is another way to remind yourself how much better you are than the person who sinned. You know, you can spread the word around. Not, not only did they sin, but you have the option to, uh, to help the whole community know that you can identify that sin and that you're better than it. It's, it's uh, a great opportunity there in the community. I'm being sarcastic, obviously. Um, there's greed. If their sin puts, that puts him in debt to you, you can use it for power. You can use it to control him. 
Or you can always just lash out in anger, fight fire with fire. In other words, your brother's sin has the potential to be a scandal to you in many ways. Oh, by the way, this means that your sin, even your most private sin, could qualify as a scandal to your brother or sister. So watch out. That's what Je- in the middle of this thing, Jesus just says, watch out, <laughs> beware. So if my sin is a possible scandal to you, and your sin is a possible scandal to me, and scandalizing one another, at least scandalizing one of these little ones, whoever that is referring to, puts us at risk of horrific, chaotic death, like drowning. What are we to do? What are we to do? Well, when there's a scandal, Jesus calls us to scandalize the scandal. And we do this in three steps. He's very straightforward. First, when your brother sins, he says, rebuke it. Rebuke it. This, this doesn't sound good. I don't like the sound of this. Uh, we don't call out sin because it's offensive to the sinner. It, you know, a, a rebuke is a scandal too. Didn't you hear the warning? You know, if I cause a scandal, it's going to be worse for me than if I was drowned in the sea. It's a big cost to, you know, to confront the sinner, to, to scandalize someone. It's a big cost. And rebuking the sinner sounds harsh. It sounds like exposing them, maybe yelling at them, uh, shaming them, punishing them. You know, anyone who's a parent in the room, you, you rebuke your kids, and sometimes quite harshly and directly, right? Now, the word in the Greek that is translated rebuke here actually has a a more nuanced meaning. It means to assess the value of something. Isn't that interesting? When your brother sins, assess the value of it. Rather than merely saying, you're sinning, sinner. (laughs) Assessing the value invites us to ask questions. Huh, I noticed you did this. Do you, what do you think about that? <laughs> what do you think about that behavior? That, uh, here's what I'm experiencing. What's going on there? You're inviting their own assessment. And when you do that, you might not need to add your own assessment. You might. You might need to say, well, okay, so you're saying you think that's okay, but I think that's destructive. I think that's hurting you or hurting others. So first, we rebuke it. The second way we scandalize the scandal is through forgiveness. When your brother repents, he says, forgive. Forgiving is offensive. Did you, forgiving is offensive. If you truly understand what forgiveness is, Forgiving is offensive. C.S. Lewis has a great little essay on forgiveness. It, it, it's in his book, The Weight of Glory. It, it's, it's this great thinking on forgiveness. And what he notices is that we easily uh, conflate and confuse forgiveness and excusing. We easily mix those two up. So when someone says, hey, I'm sorry, we say, it's, no, it, it, it was nothing. It's no big deal. 
forget about it. That's what we, we say things like that. We, we, we try to excuse the sin. We want to be excused. Like, I did this, but you need to understand that uh, the, the context, the circumstances that led me to do that, we, we want to excuse. And, and the deal is, in relationships with other people, it's likely that we should excuse much more than we do with other people. When we give the when we give people the benefit of the doubt or consider the context for what they did, we might find that there is less to forgive than we initially thought. Let me let me put it in C.S. Lewis's words. Here, here here's his words. One must begin by attending to everything which may show that the other man was not so much to blame as we thought. But so pause there. For, forgiveness comes to play with and only with the inexcusable. Here's, you can see what he says. But even if he is absolutely fully to blame, we still have to forgive him. Even if 99% of his apparent guilt can be explained away by really good excuses, the problem of forgiveness begins with the 1% of guilt which is left over. Here's what he's saying. True forgiveness requires an honest assessment that a wrong was really done. If, you, if you're in a situation with someone and you know you need to forgive them, it is not going to happen until you acknowledge the wrong and the pain and the damage that has happened. Until that is named, forgiveness isn't going to come about. It does not say forget about it or it's nothing. That's excusing. Forgiving says that hurt me. Forgiveness deals with the inexcusable part. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray in Luke chapter 11, the, the Lord's Prayer, you know, the, perhaps the most famous prayer on planet Earth. He, in, in Luke 11, uh, he used two different words. When we're talking to God, we say, forgive us of our trespasses. Forgive it. That's, that's a more generic term for big sin. And then he says, forgive us of our trespasses, for we have forgiven our debtors. And that is a fascinating explanation of what's happening when we have sin between us. We owe each other something. And when you forgive, you say, I no longer require you to pay back anything for what's done. There's nothing you need to do to make it right. If I'm still having bad feelings about it, that's my problem from here on out. That's, what, that's forgiveness, biblically speaking. Debts is an acknowledgement that what you do affects me and what I do affects you. When I act selfishly, it costs you. It says, what you have done puts you in my debt. And we say that in order to say, and as of this moment, you don't owe me anything. So, re the rebuke is offensive, the forgiveness is offensive, but the third step it gets even harder because the third step is keep on forgiving forever. And that's a toughie. Jesus' words are bonkers here. Even if your brother sins against you seven times in a day and, and re repents seven times, you must forgive him. Friends, if you're in relationship with someone 
and they do something, they do the same thing to you seven times in a year. And each time they are asking, look, I'm sorry, I blew it again. Please forgive me. That's going to be hard. That's going to be a, a high cost. To, seven times in a year, you're starting to think, should I really be in relationship with this person? Like, maybe we need some better boundaries. But, you know, this person has, they have a, they have a, behavioral disorder apparently they keep doing this thing and keep you know even though they know it's wrong they can't stop they keep doing it maybe i just can't deal with it jesus says keep on forgiving and it's not seven times a year or seven times in a month seven times in a day i mean it's exaggerated to prove a point because it sounds utterly foolish if someone is sinning against you seven times in a day, you need to take a few days off from them. That's, well, that's our common wisdom. Get distanced by any means necessary. It feels like putting yourself through abuse, being used, putting yourself in position of absolute servitude to that person. And yeah, that's exactly what Jesus is inviting us to do. His advice about the scandal is scandalous. No wonder the apostles, he's been talking to the disciples, that's a bigger group. The apostles is the 12 guys. And, and finally, they, they speak up. They're like, this is too much. What do they say? Lord, increase our faith. I love this response. I love this response so much because it is coming from the right place. They understand that they do not have what it takes to obey this command. It is too much. It's too hard. We need more. You need to give us more of the stuff that would enable us to do that. It's not a bad prayer. It's a great prayer. Jesus is about to uh, redirect it a little bit, but it's not a bad prayer. Friends, like the, like the father whose son got healed or he came looking for healing, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a wonderful prayer to pray. Increase our faith. He says, it's, it's so good. Faith that comes from Jesus has world-changing power. Jesus responds to this request, increase our faith with this statement. He says, if you had faith, now our translation said faith as small as a mustard seed, but it's a simpler phrase. If you had faith like a mustard seed, you could say to this black mulberry tree, be uprooted and thrown in the sea, and it would do it. If you had faith like a mustard seed, you could say to this tree. It turns out this is the second time Jesus has talked about mustard seeds and trees. A few chapters ago, Jesus is trying to explain the kingdom of God. And he says the kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed that a man sows in the field and it grows and becomes, well, you know what a mustard seed becomes? A shrub. But this mustard seed grows and becomes a tree. And then the birds come and nest in it. So mustard seeds and trees is, is, would, would bring their minds back to that. Oh, wait. If you had faith like a mustard seed, he said the kingdom is like a mustard seed. Interesting. So if you had faith that's like that very small thing that has such huge power, you could say to a black mulberry tree, be uprooted and thrown in the sea. Now, 
if the faith were my faith, if it were just my effort, my expression, my, my work, God would owe me. He would owe me thanks. He would owe me special honor. But if it is faith that he gives to me, that he sows in my life, that's fully his gift, then I am forever in his debt. This faith has the power to do something that only the judge can do. It has the power to throw a huge object into the sea. And there's another connection in our passage. Why do I think these things are all connected? Because the one who scandalizes one of these little ones should be thrown with a huge object into the sea. And now faith like a mustard seed can say to a mulberry tree, be thrown where? Into the sea. Yeah, James. It can be thrown into the sea. That, that's the connect. Jesus is tying all of these images together. There's something about the power of faith that we need to understand and something about what it does. The mustard seed-like faith can pull out a tree, and not just any tree, can pull out a black mulberry tree. Now, for all of my arborists in the room, this picture is a white mulberry tree but I think they're pretty similar. <laughs> I really hope so. Notice what's going on with this tree. Mulberry trees have something famous about them, an expansive root system. Do you see those roots coming out the bottom of that tree? I mean, it's this wild, these trees are famously hard to uproot. You can't do it. The, the, the roots are so expansive. And faith can remove something that seems otherwise impossible to remove. Something with roots as tangled and spread out as this. What could that be? Now, I'm just taking a guess at it, but something that's deeply rooted, something that affects everything. Maybe it's the very thing that Jesus is addressing with rebukes and repentance and grace seven times a day. Maybe the black mulberry tree that Jesus is referencing is sin itself, woven deep into every part of our lives, causing scandals to us and scandals to others all the time. The mustard seed of his kingdom is the authority and grace to remove that, to throw it in the sea. Only by the faith that he plants us, plants in us, only by the power of the kingdom itself can we do that. I should give you the last sentence of that C.S. Lewis paragraph that I read to you before. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. What is our faith? That God has pulled that mulberry tree out of our own lives and thrown it into the sea. In fact, Jesus says, on far too many occasions for there to be any question about it. If we don't forgive others, he won't forgive us. We won't be forgiven. Maybe a better way to say it is that a failure to forgive others demonstrates the fact that we do not understand the forgiveness that has been shown to us. We have not really received it. We're trying to use the grace against people instead of for people. Only insofar as we grasp the enormity of what we've been forgiven can we be able to forgive others 
And when we fail to forgive others, it demonstrates that we have not actually grasped the enormity of that forgiveness. That's the only way that we could do this, you guys. You can't forgive others if you haven't believed the forgiveness for yourself. You just can't do it. So the first way we deal with the scandal is we scandalize the scandal through rebuke and insane forgiveness. But also, sometimes we have to scandalize the scandalized. When you scandalize your brother, you're in for brutal suffering. You are. One way or the other. Whether you're doing it in a way of exposing the sin or whether you are leading them to sin, you are in for brutal suffering. Whatever the suffering is, it's worse than drowning on the ocean floor. This may happen when you sin or when you tempt or cause or mislead your brother to sin. Make no mistake, the Bible's full of warnings about that, especially to those who are in positions of influence and leadership, like people with a microphone strapped to their face. The Bible is full of warnings for for people doing what I'm doing here. If I am leading you to sin, I'm in for trouble. I will be judged more severely, the book of James says. If you're a leader in this church in any way, this passage passage should terrify you. It should. But as I've suggested, a scandal can also happen when you rebuke or assess the sin. At that moment, the moment when someone calls out my sin, I have a buffet of sin choices. When someone calls out my sin, I can self-justify or I can... Repent. I can excuse it myself, or I can lash out, or I can repent. Let's sneak back to the beginning of this passage. Jesus warns us against scandalizing one of these little ones. Now, who is he talking about here? Any guy who's part of the Thursday morning Bible study, just hold your, just brace yourselves. I tried to convince the guys of my ridiculous interpretation of this passage, and I, I, I. Maybe one, maybe one was on with me. Yeah, all right. But most people, oh, you're back, Casey, good. Yeah, we're counting noses. Um, okay, so no, I searched and searched. I searched books that I haven't used at all for this Luke study to find someone who agrees with me, and no one does, so I'm most certainly wrong. But I'm still going to tell you what I think, <laughs> and then there'll be a risk of severe judgment. <clears throat> so, okay. Uh, here's the deal. It it doesn't really matter, before I say it, who one of these little ones is. Anyone whom you are putting in, in position to sin, you are setting yourself up for a significant problem, all right? The warning is for all of us, all right? And uh, it's most likely, based on what everyone in the world thinks about this passage, that Luke means, you know, um, probably new believers, like, you know, the tax collectors and sinners who are at the beginning of chapter 15, people who are interested in Jesus, but still, you know, on on the way in, that's most likely the case. I just want to add another layer of meaning. Because chapter, well, 13, 14, 15, 16, Jesus has been doing one thing nonstop. He has been offending the robes off of those Pharisees. 
I mean, he has been offending them in every way that he can think. He's been picking up. He's been doing things on the Sabbath when they don't think he should be doing things on the Sabbath. He's been telling stories where they are unmistakably the bad guy in every story. That's what he's been doing. All right? Uh, So they are offended at this point. And I found myself wondering, maybe they're the little ones, which would be offensive to them too. Because they're like, no, we're not the little ones. You know, if, if I'm right, which again, I'm probably wrong. I mean, all of these stories, it's, it's remarkable. He describes levels of forgiveness that would be seen as foolish to the Pharisees in this passage. So much forgiveness, forgiving someone so repeatedly, isn't that just enabling them? Isn't that just encouraging their sin? And then he goes on to tell this story about the servant who, who you know, works out in the fields and then comes in and shouldn't expect to be treated as an equal. No, they make dinner for the master and they don't get to eat until the master's eaten. They don't expect any thanks whatsoever. And that's, you know, if you go back, the Pharisees are all competing for who's going to get the most honor from God. It's another in-their-face story, and they know it. And in the next scene with the, the ten lepers, the one who gets special attention is the Samaritan. Gross Samaritans. They don't like them. It's a story where there are ten things that are struggling. And this story, of course, all of them are healed. But then only one comes back. And Jesus uses the language of lost and found. Was only one found who would give thanks to God? He's reminding them of those previous stories. And what does this guy do? He comes back and he falls at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, was only one found who would give thanks to God? You know what he's saying? This guy's giving thanks to me. And he's giving thanks to God. I mean, how offensive is that? He's, in their mind, he's committing blasphemy. It's the worst scandal of all. Unless it's not. Like a rebuke, there can be a godly scandal. Jesus puts anyone who's paying attention at the moment of decision. If you are paying attention to what Jesus is saying, you are going to go one way or the other. And depending on who's right, the other option is going to be sin. It's going to be grievous, terrible sin. He forces everyone who understands what he's saying to decide whether, whether it is right to reject and fight against him or right to fall at his feet and worship him. And those ultimately are the only two options. If you understand what Jesus says about himself. His identity in and of itself is a scandal. You're risking either idol worship or rejecting the living God, and there's no third option. Either grace is really what he says it is, a complete gift of God that we can never deserve, or it's what the Pharisees say. It's something that makes God need to owe us something, owe us favor and, and, and privilege. What if there's another layer to Jesus saying it would be better for that one to be thrown into the sea? What if Jesus understands that it would being drowned in the sea would be better than being tortured and crucified with the sin of the world attached to him? That's a worse fate than being drowned in the sea. What if his cross itself is a scandal? Well, turns out that's what guys like Paul and Peter, you know, guys who wrote some of the New Testament... That's what they think. 
Again and again, they refer to Jesus and his cross as a scandal, as something that causes others to stumble, an occasion for sin if people reject it. They reflect on the response to the cross that they've witnessed, and they realize the cross is the greatest scandal in history. It has either the smell of life for those who are being saved or the smell of death for those who are perishing. It's either beautiful or horrific. That's the cross. It's either a rebuke which leads to repentance or a temptation to sin which leads to the most grievous sin of all, rejecting the grace that's been offered to us. Either way, remember how every sin you commit is a possible scandal, and it would be better for you to be drowned than to do that. Oh. He went through what's worse than drowning, you guys. He went through a fate that was far worse than drowning for you. He, he has scandalized every scandal in your life. He has come and ripped it out like a mulberry tree. And that gives us the opportunity to assess in one another's lives out of love and live in the grace that he gives us. He is the true and better scandal. And when we see it, we joyfully fall at his feet, having received a gift that we could never repay and acknowledge that he's God. That's how we deal with sin in the community. Let's pray. Father, here we are rubbing shoulders with one another. And the more we do that, the more we're going to be exposed to each other's sin. Lord, would you give us the mercy and grace? Would you pour out your spirit upon us? Would you scandalize our scandals so that we can love one another well? We love you so. We're so grateful for the mercy that you've poured out on us. In Jesus' name, amen.